You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Here are the aisles, the projectionist test. Micha, hi. I'm here with Yitzhak Kolakowski, but I'm not really with him. He's, <clears throat> he's with me mentally and with his heart and soul, but he's somewhere on some one of our nation's great highways making his way back. On the LIE, I think. Oh, that's definitely one of the great highways. The Long Island Expressway? Well, that is so much has happened on that on that piece of concrete. <clears throat> so many wonderful day with um, a film that really caught my fancy. It's something I've avoided for a long time because I really thought it would be a plotting, a costume um, drama where um, you know, the, you know, the accents would be all you know, highfalutin and fake and nothing to do with the actual time period and maybe just really overdone in terms of technicolor. And although it was one of the most expensive films ever made in England up until that time, Richard Thorpe's 1951 Ivanhoe, it really uh, caught my interest and I found myself who wrote the book Ivanhoe in 1818, I believe, or 1819, really meant the book as a criticism of modern day England. And although he was a, a person with great historical interest who read uh, voluminously on what was the world of the past, he was eager to create fictions that built on the past and would, would comment on the situation in Europe and England and Europe and the world in general. And that's that, that's sort of what the great historical fiction writers are able to do. Nobody really believes that you're really transported back to that time. <clears throat> Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to understand a word. They'd be speaking in old English, and you you would probably be you'd probably be uh, you know, shattered by some sort of spear that would that would car- carve you in half. Um, it was definitely it's it's not as um, uh, the world that he conjures up is a little bit cleaner, and uh, but it does capture the philosophical and ethical issues that were prevalent in that time, and especially in the period that he's referring to, the period of the Crusades, or the First Crusade, um, the battles between the Saxons and the Normans, and what comes out really uh, strongly in his book and in the film is how the Jews are suffering regardless. And um, although Ivanhoe uh, who is this uh, valiant knight who has joined the Crusades. And we know what the Crusades wreaked upon so many communities in Germany and all the way down into Eretz Yisrael. But during the Battle of the Crusades, fighting the infidels, fighting the Arabs, fighting the Muslims, King Richard, known as the Lionhearted, was somehow um, uh, captured and taken captive by the powers that be in the Habsburg Empire, by the Austrians, uh, that was known as the Holy Roman Empire at that time. And uh, he was presumed captured or dead. And I think it's a matter of historical record that there was a grassroots effort to free him and that Jews were very important in doing that. Uh, Jewish uh, moneylenders and other men of wealth within England, uh, c- connecting themselves to their European contacts, were able to 
helped raise the money that was able to bring King Richard back to England. Now, of course, Richard, uh, although he has been portrayed in many films as this uh, great heroic figure, uh, was no good friend of the Jews. And in fact, uh, the massacres uh, that happened in England, such as the massacre of the Jews of York, occurred after Richard returned. So the film, uh, the book and the film, of course, uh, don't necessarily indicate uh, how bad Richard was, but it definitely tells you that when Richard wasn't around, uh, his brother John was ready to demonize and uh, massacre all the Jews, booked it, and the film followed, is placing the most um, the character that you have the most feeling for, the character that you have the most sympathy for, the character that is perhaps the most understanding of the wiles and idiocies of uh, the interesting battles between the Normans and the Saxons, it is a Jew. And it's not necessarily a wise Jewish man like uh, Gotthold Ephraim Lessing did in his uh, play, Nathan the Wise, but actually the wise, the wise Jewish man's daughter, Rebecca. And Rebecca is considered by many one of the most incredible fictional characters because unlike uh, in Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice, um, she is the daughter, although she's still the daughter of a moneylender, she does not necessarily just desire only absorption into the Christian world, uh, into the world of humanity. She wants to keep the faith of her fathers, to keep the faith of Israel. And um, she is incredibly beautiful, and everyone is attracted to her. And she remains chaste. She remains someone who is committed to healing. She has been trained by her mother, it seems, or some other Jewish woman who had been burned as a witch for her. She becomes connected to the titular character, uh, Sir Wilford of Ivanhoe, uh, because he is wounded in a battle. And um, <coughs> she, this is a battle that uh, is take, takes place uh, in, a, in a joust in order to somehow find out information from these knights of the Templar, whoever they are, where perhaps um, what is truly going on with King Richard. Um, but he's wounded uh, by uh, Sir Gilbert, um, and uh, since he's not able to uh, to finish the joust, uh, he is nursed back to health by uh, by Rebecca, who and Rebecca uh, develops an affection for him. And it's natural the way uh, Sir Walter Scott draws the story that someone who uh, is denied access into the world, someone who has been pushed around, someone who has been demonized, uh, should want entry into that world. And Sir Walter Scott uh, recognizes that Rebecca has that desire, that Rebecca for this night. But Sir Walter Scott is mature enough to realize that those feelings aren't the feelings of true love. They're the feelings of infatuation, of wanting something different, of wanting to change your life of wanting to be someone else. And this is the this is what she actually struggles with in the book, where she comes to recognize that despite the fact that she might have easy entrance into that world because of her beauty, she remains connected to the service of the Ovis. And 
Walter Scott in his book, uh, you know, although her father in the book is shown to be a person of avarice, a person who is into money, but the characters in the book discuss the fact that the Jews have been forced to become avaricious and greedy and engage in usury because they have been denied so much of what's considered a normal life. And if they would be given justice, then justice would mean something. And if you, if you have a society, this is one of the things that is uttered by Rebecca, uh, that if you have a society that does not mete out justice to all, then there is no justice in that society. This was something that Walter Scott wanted to bring forth, especially when it came to uh, the 19th century, still uh, pushing back the Jews and not allowing them entrance into the world fully. And he wanted to use Rebecca as a way of 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 indicating that they the Jews can be a beautiful people and that the Jews should be extolled for their virtues. That was why he wrote Ivanhoe, or one of the reasons why he wrote Ivanhoe. When the film was made, although I think there had been other versions of it, this film was made post-World War II. And I've spoken to you many times, Yitzhak, how after the Holocaust, it, it was finally okay to go back to recognizing anti-Semitism, uh, Gentleman's Agreement, Crossfire, and other works uh, that, that that underscored this, and that now a Jew, as a Jew, as a Orthodox Jew, could be considered someone to uh, to have as a hero or as a heroine. Um, the the film is really has an all star cast. Um, Robert Taylor, who was one of the great uh, handsome leading men of Hollywood. I don't know if he ever had the type of panache or the type of grit of Errol Flynn. He's definitely a handsome fellow. Um, but, you know, he was he's somewhat wooden as the title character, Ivanhoe. Um, they say that, you know, he was able to, uh, with Richard Thorpe, who made this film, he was able to make a couple of other films uh, that had him in somewhat of a, uh, you know, a heroic splash puppy role, although he was in his 40s at this point. Um, it also has Joan Fontaine. Of course, Joan Fontaine uh, and her sister, Olivia de Havilland, had been in a number of costume on beauty. Um, uh, and she is the, 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 uh, she is somehow a, uh, a Saxon, could be queen if the Saxons had power again. And her name is Rowena, Princess Rowena. Um, and uh, she lives by her, she lives by her adopted father, Cedric, who is actually the father of Ivanhoe. Uh, Cedric is their actor, Finley Curry. And we talked about Finley Curry, Yitzchak, a couple of months ago in the Cary Grant Theater. He plays Dr. Pretorius's uh, close friend uh, who has some sort of terrible past. Um, and uh, in this film, he talks quite a bit. Uh, he is uh, Ivanhoe's father, and he is someone who also uh, hates the Normans, um, but he also, uh, when uh, when a Jewish banker uh, comes to his house seeking refuge from the inclement weather, he wants to throw out, he feels maybe they should throw out him as an infidel, but then he decides it might be all right. Um, you know, he sleeps in the barn. <laughs> he puts uh, the Jewish, uh, the Jewish uh, financier in the barn. Um, the Jew is, the Jewish father uh, is played by Felix 
Aylmer, who was uh, as English actor as they come. <laughs> and uh, he plays him as an old Jew with a little bit of a sort of an accent, uh, <laughs> not like Rod Steiger or the Chosen or anything like that. But he, you, know, you can tell that he's, he's, he, his English isn't exactly the one of his, he actually doesn't speak English like Olivier, but uh, it, just a tinge of a little bit of an accent. Um, but he, <laughs> he seems to be a, a wiser and kindlier person than Sir Walter Scott's portrayal of him in the book. When, um, uh, <laughs> as uh, he's, he's attacked in the middle of the night, the Jew, uh, even though he was under, under Cedric's, <coughs> Cedric's protection, he's attacked by some brigands who want his money belt. And Ivanhoe, who was snuck back, although he's in, not in his father's good graces, and um, he, he came to his father to see if he could raise money uh, to, for the ransom of Richard, uh, saves the Jew from being uh, killed for his money. And to pay him back, the Jew uh, gives him refuge in his house uh, and promises him in Sheffield and promises him to help raise the money. Now, it's at that time that Rebecca, Isaac's daughter, spies Sir Wilford. She spies him and she, she's covering her, her, her mouth and fade, most of her face with a veil. And this actress who plays her is Elizabeth Taylor. Elizabeth Taylor, um, eight years after she makes this film, does convert to Judaism. Um, she unfortunately buried her third husband, uh, Mike Todd, who was supposedly the love of her life, uh, a Jewish uh, producer and director. Uh, and uh, she's about to marry Eddie Fisher. So she figured she's going to become a Jew. So she studies, of course, this is Elizabeth Taylor does at the age of 27. And this is where, you know, under she, she goes through a reform conversion. But in this film, she plays the Jew and she plays the Jew, as I said, very much in the spirit of Sir Walter Scott's book. She is going to stay towards Judaism. And of course, the, the, the conceit of the film is that even Joan Fontaine, who had been a leading lady in Hollywood, realizes that Elizabeth Taylor is a knockout, and that that Ivanhoe, um, when he does engage in battle before he gets wounded, actually goes over to uh, where Isaac and Rebecca, where Elizabeth Taylor is sitting there as Rebecca, and he nods to her, and somehow everybody realizes how beautiful this woman is, and even. Um, the other night, Gobert, who wounds Ivanhoe, is also incredibly, madly, uh, erotically in love with this incredible beauty. And that is somehow, that's the dynamism uh, in the way of the film from that point on, is that, um, that uh, Gobert, who was played wonderfully by George Sanders, and I, I think I've told it to see you off pod, there's many characters that are supposed to play intelligent villains, thoughtful villains, uh, philosophical uh, bad guys, heavies. No one does it better than George. He, even in his earlier films, where he wasn't necessarily the stock bad guy, you realize that he wasn't just 
uh, mannequin uh, mouthing words that he had uh, memorized. He's, uh, he was obviously a very thoughtful person, and he brought that uh, to the roles that he played. You know, both of us, of course, love him in um, in uh, Village of the Damned, um, which uh, is is one of the great English horror films. Um, you know, uh, and he is he is again wonderfully intelligent and and, and heroic in that film. In this film. Um, He's in a stuck in a bad position. Uh, he's he's working for King. He's working for King John. Um, he's madly infatuated with this Jew, and he has actually, as the story makes clear, he's actually fought Ivanhoe in the past uh, when somehow in Acre, which of course Aku and Eretz Israel, they had somehow fought in battle, and um, there's no question about it that George Sanders is much more of a real life figure than than <laughs> Robert Taylor is, but they are both in a way caught up uh, with Rebecca. And although Joan, even Joan Fontaine, uh, who is, uh, as the film points out, has been uh, a lover of Ivanhoe, and even as children uh, or as youngsters, similar to Romeo and Juliet, they had cut their wrists together and somehow allowed the blood of one to flow into the other. She realizes the type of appeal, the type of power that Rebecca yields. I have to tell you that although Joan Fontaine was clearly could outact Elizabeth Taylor, and Elizabeth Taylor, I think, said after the film that she felt she really was not, didn't really have a meaty role, her physical presence, her incredible beauty, her virginal beauty, because she's dressed in white a lot. Um, she doesn't look anything like that, you know, donut-eating matron of her later years that, that you know, John Belushi, I think, made himself up uh, to Elizabeth Taylor. I mean, here you really see Liz. You see why she was so striking. And to me, it was like the, the beauty of Claudia Israel, the beauty of Knesset Israel. I'll go out on a limb and say, look, it's almost like she she embodied the beauty of the Shrina here. And you actually, you know, uh, you know because as as the film progresses, uh, uh, you know, you, you can see that somehow the Jews are right in the middle. By the way, her dad uh, walks around in this robe that has the Shem Havaya on it, along with the words Baruch Atah, and other things on it as if they had somehow stitched together. Um, something from some sitter that they found with, and they put, you know, he walks around. Uh, uh, it's not a talus necessarily, but it's some macaw or lavush that has like aspects of, of Torah and Kedush on it. And um, it, it really, the, you know, again, I don't want to give everything away over here, but it actually does have um, some great battle scenes. And it also has, uh, they're not, called Robin Hood and his Merry Men, but it's clear that Sir Walter Scott meant them, and they are in the film as well. Uh, they, are, of course, are on the side of Richard, and they help Ivanhoe. Basically, a, a, they call him Loxley, which, of course, Robin Hood basically was Robin Loxley. And there's another character uh, played by Sebastian Cabot, who um, looks very, very much like a Friar Tuck. 
type of character in there. So there's a lot of great battle scenes. There's a storming of the castle. There's a lot of arrows. Um, the jousting is realistic. Uh, the final battle, um, uh, which is somehow based on uh, um, you know, this idea that God will decide the fate of Rebecca, the trial of Rebecca, where uh, Guy Rolf, uh, who's played a villain many times in Hollywood, uh, who plays King, uh, who plays well, uh, plays King John or Prince John, uh, the speech that he makes, uh, the anti-Semit, the anti-Semitism that's in the speech. The sense of the other, the sense of the xenophobia, uh, the, the hatred uh, towards the other, and how we have to drive the Jews out. I think it was very, very powerful. So uh, it has a great score by Miklos Roja. And you know, unlike the film that Miklos Roja won the Academy Award for later, Ben Hur, which also has you know Charlton Heston as a Jewish protagonist, I think this does a much better job about indicating why Judaism continues to survive. And why Judaism is important, um, what Judaism maybe even has to learn from perhaps uh, a greater sense of connection uh, to the Gentile world. But I, I, it was—I can't say that it was a rollicking, exciting film, but it was definitely something that it was it was worth. It's, it doesn't go on for that much longer than that. You know, when it comes to to Richard Lionheart, I wonder. Historically, how it would have been differently if, you know, according to what we've always heard, was that he invited the Rambam to be his doctor, and the Rambam said he didn't have Kayach to, to move to England. But I wonder what it would have changed Jewish, uh, British, British Jewry if the Rambam had 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 acquiesced and left Egypt and, and gone up to England. If that would have changed the trajectory of. Or, or if it wouldn't have mattered at all, you know, as far as the expulsion of the Jews and, and the pogroms in New York. Possibly. Thing. Again, I, I think there's a lot of legend that swirls around Richard. I'm not sure if that story is accurate. Um, yeah. You know, I, did, I, did, I thought it was, there was some sap from the Rambam where he wrote that he didn't have Koyach to to move or something along those lines. That's what uh, I... Again, I'm not sure if the chronologically it lines up. Possibly. I don't know, Yitzhak. I don't, you know... Um, look, uh, you know, you're talking about, you know, Sir Walter Scott's writing about a period that we know the Jews were massacred and expelled afterwards, right? So, um, despite their contributions, despite the fact that they... It wouldn't be for the Jews, they wouldn't have brought back... Um, Richard would have been brought back. The, in the film... Uh, as I said, you know, Guy Rolf playing uh, uh, Prince John says he's been, even if he can't be the same king anymore, even if he is my brother, he has already been polluted by the Jews, by their witchcraft, and he's not the same person. I mean, this is, this is really, you know, you know, Nazi-like anti-Semitism that I think the film was, was putting on display here. And uh, what was interesting was that they were saying it happened in England, too. And it's here, it's still around. And I think that's, again, why the film uh, deserves more credit. I think people dismiss Ivanhoe as, yeah, it's one of those costume things. Yeah, okay, it was one of Liz's early works. I don't know if Liz has been put to better use. I mean, we talked about her in National Velvet as well. But just Liz being who she is, just the physical aura of her uh, being 
combined with the idea of the pristine beauty of Yiddishkeit. I, 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 you have to be a you have to be a cat film, but I think it's really worth your while. It's only an hour and seventeen minutes. Uh, it's called Love Is News. It moves like a freight train. It's a little bit like um, a mix between the front page and it happened one night. Uh, it's it's a little bit of a newspaper story, but instead of having a a, a murder and an execution at the heart of it, uh, is it's about an heiress who runs away from her uh, uh, French. Uh, uh, duke or count that she was married to, and she's this uh, American tin can. Uh, I think of the, the, the tin can heiress because I think her father is some sort of real grub American, uh, you know, f- f- uh, guy who made money and and some sort of some sort of business that's taken over a bunch of other businesses. Most of them having to do with like canned goods or things like that. Um, the real American one, uh, and it's played by it's the, the film. Uh, the heiress is played by Loretta Young, who, uh, as I said, I don't think she's ever, I don't think she ever uh, was in a film where she puts in a bad performance. Um, the lead in the film is Tyrone Power. Was actually um, uh, he's uh, we talked about him in Nightmare Alley, uh, the type of uh, performance he gave there. I mean, this isn't as nuanced, but there's a quite a bit of 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 understanding and drama in this. He plays a newspaper reporter who gets the tables turned on him uh, because he wants to get the exclusive about uh, Tony Gateson. That's Loretta Young's uh, character. I think her name is Antoinette or something, but they call her Tony. And uh, he somehow tricks his way onto her plane uh, and she decides to turn the tables on him and she tells all the reporters that this is her newest lover and this is the guy she wants to get married to. So he gets a taste of his own medicine. So the film is uh, somewhat a comment on the paparazzi-like uh, atmosphere that surrounds these pseudo-celebrities and how they, in a way, it's unfair to to judge them uh, and to constantly be on top of them because they have no lives. But it's also a critique on us for being so caught up in what they're doing and what the rich and famous are about, which, you know, again, it's a screwball comedy made still during technically the years of depression. So you're going to have to see some of the idiocies and follies of the rich. Um, But it turns the tables a little bit and shows you that even the poor that are somehow excessively involved in what's going on with them, there's also something that needs to be checked in with them. Don Amici is sort of the, plays the editor uh, of the paper uh, and uh, he does a very fine job. I really think Don Amici was an underappreciated actor. I talked about him, if you remember, a number of months ago in the vehicle Midnight that he did with, uh, that he did with uh, Claudette Colbert. Um, and, but here he does a really, a really funny, a funny bit. Um, there's uh, there are upstate New York judges uh, who sound like they just came out of the old west uh, who lock up. Uh, lock up Loretta Young when she goes on a joyride. Um, there's also a Jewish uh, reporter played by the non-Jew Walter uh, Walter Kiplet, um, who uh, wasn't Jewish, but he uses the word kibitz a bunch of times in the uh, playing this uh, this fellow. Obviously, uh, a seemingly very Jewish type of role. Um, uh, the Oscar winner uh, Jane Darwell. 
is in the film as well. Uh, she plays Tyrone Powers' landlady. Um, Stephen Fetchett is in it. So it's a little bit of uh, a little bit of what we would call some pretty ugly stuff in terms of the, the racist aspects. Stephen Fetchett is there. Um, but it was one of the first films of Alicia Cook Jr. Alicia Cook Jr. Of course, um, um, was in from the Maltese Falcon on. Uh, was one a staple of film noir. Uh, a great, great face. Uh, and he plays this kid out of Harvard who sort of gets his first job as a reporter um, and sort of hangs out with uh, with Tyrone Power in the beginning of the film. Um, it's got it's just it moves quickly um, and it's believable the romance that eventually really occurs uh, between Tyrone Power, Steve Layton character. Uh, and there's a growth arc that uh, Loretta Young happens to her too when she comes to realize uh what things are important that perhaps uh she's been selling short uh what's been going on with the people who are writing about her um so the film i think is it's not exactly the the greatest screwball comedy it's not like something that preston sturgis would write um but i think it's 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 enjoyable and moves well and the uh, the acting if not superb it definitely is 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 a is class A, uh, and I really got a sense of why uh, audiences really love Tyrone Power. Uh, he has the same sort of vulnerability that we talked about in Nightmare Alley, uh, but also a lot of dashing dare do, um, worthy really of of others like Cary Grant and Errol Flynn and Gable. So that's uh, another film I think Love Is News, and I think it still has relevance, especially today's. Uh, media obsessed. Two weeks in a row with um, Jack Arnold. Jack Arnold. I, I can stick to Jack Arnold. He's, he's such a prolific uh, uh, director, and he didn't only make science fiction, but those are the ones that are probably most well re- remembered. And the there was the famous trilogy, probably the most famous you know monster that he directed was the creature from the Black Lagoon that, you know, when it be, was inaugurated into the canon of the Universal Monsters, where, you know, we had the classic gothic monsters of Frankenstein and Dracula and the Wolfman. And then eventually, uh, you know, they really, you know, so you had Frankenstein and Dracula were in the 30s and the Wolfman in the 40s. And the, in the 50s, it was kind of thought, well, that's that's the end of, of that, and they're going more into the science fiction. It's I, I, like I agree with you. I think my wife was watching Twenty Five Words or Less, and I think I think the the world word they had to get was creature, and Black Lagoon creature came out right away. I think even the word lagoon, you're going to say black, <laughs> based on it. Yes. Oh. So for some reason, even people have not seen that film. Even people who have not seen the creature Black Lagoon recognize oh. that it's 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 iconic. Yep, yep. Sorry, I'm honking. I'm trying to get under the George Washington Bridge right now, so it's uh, <laughs> a little. Okay, so so do you want? So we know he made the Revenge of the Creature, which was so that that was the movie that I wanted to make was wanted to speak about was this there the second of the trilogy was the Revenge of the Creature, and of all the three, it's really my favorite, the, the one that I can just or anything. I think you know of the what, three. First, what's the what, what's what's the third film? Third film is called The Creature Walks Among Us. 
So that's, uh, you know, uh, probably maybe the more serious of the three. It's, it's maybe even the most adult movie. Um, and also it's with, with that backdrop of turning the creature from an underwater creature into a land creature and the, really the pathos of this monster not wanting to be a land creature, you know, being forced to be something he doesn't want to be. That's a much more serious of, of the three this one is um, the fun, the fun one of the three. It's 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 somewhat uh, you know tongue in cheek, a lot of tongue in cheek humor. Uh, the music score, written by I think five different composers, including Henry Mancini, was was one of the composers. So you have uh, a lot of great talent there. The star is John Agar, who was in a lot of these movies. Revenge of the Creature, it's, it's one I've seen many times. And again, I, like I said, I can, I can sit and watch that movie by itself. The, the first Creature from the Black Lagoon movie, I feel, is kind of boring, to be honest. Even though it's iconic and it's well-made and it's beautiful, but it's still, uh, there, it's, it's kind of boring. Whereas Revenge of the Creature, it keeps up the pace. It's fun. It's funny. It's... Um, you know, it has one thing that I guess is really uh, iconic about it or historical about it is that you have uh, Clint Eastwood, I believe, in his first talking role. He has, I wouldn't call it a cameo because he wasn't famous yet, but he's a college student, a student of, of John Agar's character uh, in a kind of a funny joke role. Um and and you can you you see him you see it's a young Clint Eastwood and it's he's not really doing that good of a job but it's you know it's it's not it's not uh, it's not Jack Nicholson in Little Shop of Horrors but yes it's, yes he plays he's called it, Jennings Jennings is his name in the I didn't even know he had a name in the in the in the scene I guess I don't know if that was just in the script or. Uh, he he was in another Jack Arnold movie in the same year, Tarantula. He didn't have a speaking role there. I don't think you could even really see his face. He was by the aviator's mask, but in this one, he he speaks and he's he's there. But the the film is it. it yeah, I think you're right. I think it's his first film. Uh, yeah, in the, the same, of course, the same year he made this up. The other the other great Tarantula, yeah, and Francis in the Navy. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. And uh, is that this? Is that the Francis movie that's Mara Corday? Francis in the Navy actually has a bunch of uh, uh, wonderful actors in it. Jim Backus is in it, along with uh, David Jansen and uh, Marty Milner. <laughs> a lot of a lot of uh, actors and actresses who, who ended up on TV. I guess he was just there on the in the uh, Universal backlot, and they just. They found, they found stuff for him to do. It seems yeah. like he he also was in the Lady Godiva of Coventry that same year, uh-huh. and Tarantula, <laughs> right? And Tarantula, I know, had Mark Corday, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and also John Agar. So John Agar got around there. Um, he was also, I guess that, that was the next. But it's really weird, though. The creature sort of, uh, you know, the, the creature is, is 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 a human in a way, right? Because he he develops he develops a love relationship with this with this woman in Florida where he's captured, right? Yeah, Lori Nelson plays the the main um, 
the love interest, so to female speak. Uh, character, and she's uh, she's studying to be an ichthyologist, and uh, there's just uh, you know they the the whole story is that they bring the creature from the Amazon up to Florida to be in, in kind of a Sea World aquarium type of a, a thing, and they're doing both scientific experiments, but there's also the the commercial aspect, and you see. It, it and it and it's and not only is it the commercial aspect of what is in the plot, but there's kind of a commercial in the movie. Is that you you get to see? It's not called Sea World. I don't remember the name of the of the park, but you get to see their shows with the seals and the dolphins and all the other uh, you know underwater acts there on screen in the in the movie itself, and they're presented you know in an entertaining way. Just like you would probably see in real life in 1955, there at this uh, at this park. So it's it's uh, and the the interesting thing that Leonard Walton pointed out was one of the Jaws sequels, which I think perhaps was Jaws 3D, had the same uh, plot that they brought Jaws to, to a uh, to SeaWorld in Florida, and he wreaks havoc there and. And Leonard Walton posits that that I think again it was Jaws three, which was in three D, was called Jaws three D, uh, was was an unofficial sequel to Revenge of the Creature. That was that was Leonard Walton's uh, kind of thesis there about about that that particular Jaws sequel. So interesting how these plots are rehashed. Yes, yeah, so uh, I, I don't know. If, I, I guess what you're saying is because even if you don't want to see Creature from the Black Lagoon, you can watch this one on its own and. You know, uh, take some popcorn with you and and enjoy it while it's while it's going down. Um, yeah, John Agar, of course, uh, was notable, uh, perhaps notorious, you know, in, in quite a negative way. He married uh, Shirley Temple, uh, but he apparently was was quite abusive to her. So that's kind of a sad part of the story. Uh, but he was married to her, I think, a, a year or two. Uh, to Shirley Temple, so there's a little, little bit of trivia there too, and he, he he always kind of plays the same character in all these movies, where he's kind of the the know-it-all scientist that you know, uh, you know. They... I think he, I think he might, I think he met her in Fort Apache. I think, um, I, you know, I believe so. Right, yeah. John Ford's wonderful film, uh, Fort Apache, The Bronx. Uh, you know, John Agar plays, I think, one of the um, one of the second lieutenants or something like that. And um, and of course, uh, this was Shirley Temple's one of her important teenage roles uh, where she plays Philadelphia Thursday, uh, the daughter of very flawed uh, Lieutenant Colonel Owen Thursday. It's actually I, I would I, I think it's one of Ford's most overlooked subtle films, which is Ford Apache. That's where Agar met. Shirley Temple there, and I guess he ruined America's sweetheart. So that's a, that's not a bad pick. Um, I want to throw in another quick hit. It's worth, if you can watch it on double speed, uh, it's called It's a Great Feeling. It's a 1949 uh, vehicle for Doris Day, but it's, it's, it's basically uh, a satire on Warner Brothers, made by Warner Brothers. Uh, Warner Brothers was one of the um, was one of the uh, studios that didn't mind turning a little bit of a mirror on itself um, as the Looney Tunes 
Warner Brothers cartoons always did. Um, and in this film, uh, they sort of make fun of the whole uh, filmmaking industry, the star making industry, um, what female stars have to go through. And um, it's a nice throwaway thing uh, to watch. Uh, it's got a couple of uh, cute songs in it. Dennis Morgan and Jack Carson probably has his biggest role here, uh, playing a version of himself as a ham, as an egomaniac, as a liar. And he plays Jack Carson. He's playing himself, but a fictionalized version of himself with enough of the real guy in there uh, that you sort of find it quite appealing. Um, it's great because you actually have Michael Curtis, uh, Michael Curtis, uh, in a cameo, uh, along with uh, Raoul Walsh, uh, King uh, King Vidor, um, and the director. Yeah, David Butler is in it, uh, and he's the director. <laughs> he has a uh, he has a cameo. Basically, the the reason why they're there is because the directors none of them want to work with Carson because Jack Carson is such a ham, such an egomaniac, so terrible to work with. So the plot is that he's got to direct his own film, Dennis Morgan, who, of course, um, uh, to, uh, is scheduled to be the, the star of the film, but there's no way she's going to work with Jack Carson. Ronald Reagan is in this film as well. So the actual Jane Wyman, Ronald Reagan, Maureen Reagan is in the film as well. Everybody's got a, a cameo in this film, um, including someone we extolled a couple of weeks ago, Edward G. Robinson, uh, shows up uh, when uh, the producer of the film uh, doesn't want to let uh, Carson into the studio uh, because of some shenanigans that he's pulled. Edward G. Robinson shows up at the gate and tries to tough guy his way in. Uh, he's got a couple of great lines there. Um, Gary Cooper uh, is in the commissary in a cowboy outfit, uh, basically just saying, yep, um, it's also a hoot. Uh, uh, Sydney Greenstreet <laughs> shows up there as himself. So basically it has quite a, Joan Crawford has a wonderful cameo. I don't want to spoil it. So if you can watch the film on double speed and you're a film buff, you're going to like seeing this. It's a vehicle for Doris Day. Uh, Doris Day is, is young, fantastic, uh, sprightly. I mean, Doris Day was the total package. And uh, she definitely was. You could see why Warner's wanted to give her uh, this film to uh, to exhibit her her pipes, her skills, her beauty, her comedic touch, which of course she really perfected into the 50s and 60s and beyond. So it's a great throwaway little nothing. <laughs> it's even got Mel Blanc doing Bugs Bunny in there. So I'll throw that in. As far as TV goes, Yitzchak. Um, I never thought I was going to say this because I sort of ashamed how much I enjoyed it when I was a kid. But I, I think, if, especially if you have Prime Video, and so many people have Prime because they want to get Amazon shipped to them without paying uh, a lot of uh, different uh, shipping costs. So many of our listeners out there have Prime. Take advantage of watching the first couple of episodes of Lost in Space from 1965. I'm not going to recommend the series in the total. Um, I watched it when I was a kid. And uh, I, I watched the reruns also when I was a kid. So, you know, and, and it's interesting how incredible uh, Lost in Space has been because you compare it to its rival, Star Trek, 
that is mature, that is intellectual, that is thoughtful, um, you know, and, and, and this, this one is so much more, again, it was created by Irwin Allen, who did all these shows of the 60s that I was in love with. I didn't know where Irwin Allen was, Irwin Cohen, later to be called Irwin Allen, but whether it was Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, uh, Lost in Space, The Time Tunnel, Land of the Giants, I ate all this stuff up when I was a little kid. I couldn't get enough of it. And I'm sure Irwin Allen uh, is one of the reasons that has fueled my uh, sort of fevered imagination. Um, Lost in Space, and I, 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 I discovered two Jew, very important Jewish influences here. Besides Irwin Allen, who was uh, the producer and obviously probably had a hand in altering the scripts and changing stuff all the time. As I know, he was the person who decided that the show would become a lot more campy and they would focus more on the robot and Billy Mummy and, 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 and during the other seasons, which is one of the reasons why Guy Williams left the show. I mean, Guy Williams was very unhappy with the third season. Uh, the show was canceled, they say because of low ratings, but I think it was also because of the expense of, of the program. I, I think you have to make it look that those those first episodes are very similar to classic sci-fi films of the of the early and late 50s and 60s. There's a yeah, lot yeah. Of, I mean, just being in black and white and then turning to color was a, a big change. But definitely the the earlier episodes in black and white have much more of a 50s feel. And then the and then when they're in color, it's that 60s Batman, you know, campy, kitschy feel. You know, that, that well, they were competing with Batman because Batman uh, in January 66 premiered and it premiered the exact same time as as uh, as Lost in Space. So they knew what they were fighting. Um, they knew they had. And as uh, Tom Shabilla has uh, talked about on this program, they knew that they had to go into color uh, coming into the 66 season. Um, but. But the quality of the of of, of the director's cinema, cinematic choices was weakened by this turn to color as well. There's so many. If you look at in, in the first one that aired on September 15th, uh, 1965, which is technically the first episode, the pilot. I don't know if it's available. Maybe you can find it somewhere. But the film that starts the whole ball of wax rolling, and and, and you have to understand, unlike Star Trek, the show ended it was sort of a continuated a continuing show like a like an old serial they all ended with cliffhangers remember and you know the which was and, and you also had unlike star trek you had one recurring villain throughout and that was played by the wonderful jonathan harris um who was always the guest star but was really in many ways the star of the program I mean, you had Guy Williams Zorro, who was handsome and, and 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 swashbuckling in some way, you know, and, and always you know throw a boulder around and fight some alien, um, and June Lockhart. Uh, but really, the, the the locus of the program became this uh, this actor, uh, Jonathan Harris, who uh, loved the role, relished the role, and by the time you know you know you know Doc, you know Doctor Smith. You know, really one of the great villains, I think, of all, you know, uh, of all TV, wor- of the old TV world. I mean, to be able but to... He's sus- a lovable villain. He's, he's, he's a 
it's almost a hero villain, you know. <laughs> right. But you know, he's such a he's such a phony, he's such a grandiose liar. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, you know, as 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 brilliant as Star Trek is in terms of what uh, what Nimoy did as as Spock, but you really have to say that um Jonathan Harris, you know, he was you know, for three years he was really you know, consistently on his game, um, you know, and and in and, and many ways, like you say, people really, really people um, tuned in for him. John Harris's real name was Jonathan Daniel Harasuchin, and he was born in the Bronx. His parents were Russian Jews. Um, and, you know, his mother, I think they took him to the Yiddish theater. You know, and he said, you know, I'm going to shake my Bronx accent. He watched British movies. He, he read Shakespeare. And this way, you know, he became, you know, uh, uh, he really reimagined himself. And he and, and, and never really taking himself so terribly seriously. So I think, you know, now, well, Bill Mummy, I mean, look, you could take him or leave him. He was sort of obnoxious as a kid. I guess you could believe that he was this precocious you know, brilliant child who could figure stuff out uh, and, and figure out things that even uh, the 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 you know the, the pilot of the of Jupiter two couldn't figure out. Um, but you know, I guess I was sort of jealous of Billy Mummy because he was sort of like me. You know, he was a little redheaded kid with freckles, and here he was, this big movie star uh, in this show. So I guess I sort of like it was hard he for me. Wrote a book now about uh, his experiences on the show, so maybe. Uh, again, he was. You know, he, he. I think he once said on an interview that this was great for him. He felt like he was a superhero because, you know, in the way he became the star of the show, along with the robot, um, and uh, it was sort of a, a sort of a diminutive fellow who actually inhabited the robot's the robot's body. Um, but it was the voice of the robot that I think was the uh, it was sort of the that actually the first uh, seven episodes. And the first two, and maybe even more of the first season, were written by an Orthodox Jew, Shimon Winselberg. Uh, the first episode, uh, if you take a look at the credits, it's by S. Bar David. So I knew right away they were talking about somebody Jewish, but I didn't realize that it was actually someone who had written hundreds of episodes. Uh, Shimon Winselberg, who supposedly, according to the obituaries in the Washington Post and other places, uh, saw himself as a mentor for Orthodox Jews, and he, he there were Orthodox Jews that wanted to work in this business, and he made sure that he gave them a leg up, maybe in terms of writing. Um, he wrote a, a number of uh, episodes of Jews and Westerns. I mentioned to you off pod, uh, the Have Gun Will Travel, that had a, a Jew in the West. Uh, possibly, we know he wrote for uh, he wrote for Gunsmoke. It could be that Gunsmoke episode it was also with the Jew. It was also written by him. Um, but he also wrote things that had nothing to do with Judaism. Uh, he wrote a, a, an award-winning play about uh, Japanese immigrants um, in the 1950s. He also wrote for one of my favorite shows, The Wild Wild West, Mannix, another show of my youth, um, even a, number, a couple of episodes of Dynasty. So uh, Shimon Winselberg. And it's great to see that name up in your credits because in the second episode, you'll see that Shimon Winselberg. So somebody who's proud of his Jewish name. Look, Jonathan Harris had to, I'm sure at that today you could get away with being Winselberg. But, uh, 
But Harris knew what he had to do. But you know, Winselberg stayed orthodox, you know, sort of like uh, Rebecca character in Ivanhoe, <laughs> and didn't submit to uh, uh, what Hollywood would offer. Uh, kept Shabbos um, and wrote really probably, you know, episodes. I'm not saying that they're infused with Jewish philosophy, Jewish understanding, but definitely uh, to take advantage of the opportunities because everybody was watching TV and you needed someone with new ideas. So I would say, look, the, 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 the longevity of Lost in Space is quite interesting. I mean, there is a Netflix series uh, as well. Uh, there was a rebooted film. Um, it's interesting how Yitzchak, that, that there's something about what that show wanted to do that still rings a bell. You know, instead of having, you know, mature characters from all different planets like the Enterprise, this is basically about a family again. There's something about the snot-nosed boy genius, the little girl on the cusp of adolescence and discovering, you know, things about her life. Of course, Angela Cartwright played that role and she had been in Make Room for Daddy. Rounding out the characters uh, is Mark Goddard, who plays Major Don West, uh, and he's the sort of the pilot of the of the Jupiter two and they need him around uh, to pilot the stuff. And, and, and even in the first episode, you see there's something electric between him and Judy Robinson. But, you know, I always saw, she is definitely just eye candy. I don't think, I don't know, I'm not sure if she does any real acting throughout the whole three years uh, that was played by Marta Kristen. But, um, but I think uh, he has said in interviews, uh, Mark Goddard, that Irwin Allen said, look, there's not going to be any romance, no hugging and kissing uh, between them, although that's clear in the first episode that there is uh, stuff going on between them. And I think, you know, you know, you, you know once you have to, how many monsters can you visit? You know what I'm saying? Um, how many monsters, how many places? But I think some of the there's a lot of great throwbacks, especially even though the third season, I think, is is, is ridiculous. Do you remember there's an episode? It's uh, a where I think they go to a planet of robots, right? <laughs> and I think Robbie the robot is like the yeah, leader. Yeah, Robbie the robot out to the. <laughs> yeah, I think Robbie the, ro- the robot uh, made his rounds. Uh... Yeah. I think Rob. It's actually the actual Robbie the robot is there, and I think he's sort of the leader of this robot planet. And, yeah. And and the robot shows up there, and it's um. <laughs> like I said, it's quite. I mean, a lot. A lot of people, you know, if they if they don't see them together, they confuse the two. But what, you know, right? They were, they were they were designed by the same designer. Um, yeah. the same one who designed Robbie designed uh, the robot of Lost in Space. Um, but really, what's interesting, of course, is that you know you can you compare um, you know the you know the the robot uh, who was like I said the the voice of the robot voice of the robot and uh danger will robinson danger <laughs> um and, and of course bob bob may was a diminutive fellow who was inside the robot and i think during the three years of the program uh it, it, there was quite quite a uh, uh quite a uh assemblage of hollywood actors and wannabes michael rennie of course who's from the day the earth stood still showed up in a two-parter uh, in the very first season as well. So, you know, you really have, um, you know, it, it was really a hot TV in the 60s pushing the envelope in a way, coming up, trying to come up with something that 
everybody in the family uh, could watch, which, of course, doesn't exist anymore today. Episodes are still funny and campy, but there's a little bit more serious. I think there, there's something just about that style uh, that, you know, one once one into color started to be over the top, which uh, Revenge of the Creature didn't didn't go over the top. I think it, it, it hit that sweet spot for me, at least, as far as uh, a fun, funny monster movie that has some scary times. And I think that's also what the first the first season of Lost in Space has that the other seasons don't have. There, there's you don't really, it's not really scary anymore. And I think that's also the, of, of uh, Dr. Smith is such more of a villain in the black and white episodes and much more pathetic in the color episodes. And, and that could even just be a product. If, if we take it as an actual character arc and not, and not a decision that was made for any commercial reason, you know, it, it could actually represent his, you know, descent into a type of mental illness over, you know, the despair of actually being lost in space. He he starts off as this really nefarious character and develops into oh, this yes. goofy... I mean, if you think about it, in the very first episode, he's ready to kill everybody on board. He's, he's, a, he's an agent of Russia or some other government, and he's ready to basically sabotage and kill this, this, this innocent family and destroy the ship. So, I mean, you know, he isn't just a, a, a coward. You know, he's he's a murderer. And uh, the fact that that guy really sustained this series for all those years, for three years, I think that's I think I think that's saying a lot. interesting entry uh, that's somewhat overlooked uh, in the storied career of Max Ophels. Max Ophels is known as one of the greatest uh, directors of all time, also uh, a Jewish uh, refugee basically who uh, uh, from Germany who um, born uh, Maximilian Oppenheim and uh, Max Ophel's uh, American noir flick of 1949 I believe um, is definitely worth watching it's called caught uh, and it has uh, <laughs> as Robert Ryan at his most <laughs> intense and evil. We've talked about Robert Ryan before. Uh, and he is he is quite nasty and great in this one. Uh, Barbara Belgettis, uh is in this film. She's the star, uh, normatively. Uh, it's also got a, a wonderful part for James Mason, who also plays very much the good guy in this. And it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's about desiring and talking yourself into what you think you want. And Barbara Belgetti's character goes through a very interesting growth arc throughout the film. It's a surprising film, although it's very much, you would say, a genre pick in terms of a woman's pick and a film noir shot very darkly. But it definitely is. It's worthwhile. It's anything Ophuls did was was done with a lot of panache and expertise and something very, very different. So you can catch that as well. It's called Caught. So catch Caught. If you can take care, Yitzchok. Be careful, Yitzchok. Watch your step on the way, everybody. Take care. We'll see you. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.